Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Mayor Youssef, also known as the Queen of the Kanoon, a virtuoso and composer of this beautiful Middle Eastern instrument, described as a flat harp with 78 strings and possibly a descendant of the Egyptian harp. Mayor honours Arabic classical music traditions with pathways into Western classical, Latin and jazz music, and her art is to disseminate peace through the healing power of music. In Mayer's words, the act of playing music is the opposite of death and destruction. It is a life and hope-affirming act and an antidote to what is happening not only in her home of Syria, but in the whole world. I had the very great pleasure to see Mayer perform live recently, accompanied with outstanding musicians. And the music has such intricate speed, it's like a spiritual gallop. And I remember thinking, if she levitates, I'm not going to be surprised. Hello, Mayor, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Paula. Mayor, I'd really like to um, start uh, with your new album, Finding Home, because you've described that as a time of spiritual awakening for you. And I, and I wondered if you could tell us what was happening for you and, and how that awakening changed you, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, a great deal was happening in a sense that um, you know, since I was very little child, I have been searching for answers for very big questions. Um, and, you know, I was always looking for that sense of peace and sense of calm and that sense where everything feels warm, everything feels just right. And, um, and obviously, when the war started and when I was writing uh, in response to what was happening in the world around me, um, I, f- I was feeling like the river of life was just gushing from behind me and it was just taking me to places. And I was, it was a bit overwhelming. It was very overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Um, and with this one, with this, with this album, I feel that the waters have calmed. I feel that... Um, I am in a much better place, you know, um, in, in my home world, in my family, in where I am as an artist and, um, and yeah, the, the, I just basically, um, found my spiritual mentor and, um, and that is sort of my secret of, of calling it finding home because, you know, I just, I believe that we are souls and you find whom in, in that essence of you being a soul in a body. Um, so it's, it's really about the sinking into this beautiful realization and the exploration of it. I'm, I'm, I'm just not even scratching the surface, but that was, that was basically my spiritual process behind the making of finding home. Yeah, and, and it sounds like quite um, a curious experience, perhaps, um, in terms of yeah. what it is you're finding in, in yourself. And, and, and did you even need courage, perhaps, to be open to that, that experience and, and to accept it? Yeah, you always need courage because change is always scary. Um, and, you know, you just, there is always a death of the older self you know, of, of the smaller self, of, of the things that no longer serve you to embrace your greater self. Uh, and that is never comfortable. <laughs> um, mm. So, so yes, but I mean, it's, it's completely worth it. 
And it sounds like the the album uh, was equally perhaps a healing process for you as as well as as well as a healing that you that you wish to disseminate. Absolutely. I mean, it was I was just reflecting about because. I was write. I, I mean, I was writing it over a period of, of years, but then I was really going through an intense period of writing, and during this time of the year, last year, um, and all the way to, to until August when we recorded it. Um, and you know, when I was writing, I'm. I don't sleep. I lose so much weight. Um, I have like very interesting, very visual dreams. And I feel so much light, so much in- intake is coming, you know? Um, there's so much um, light filtering through my being. And that is that is healing. I mean, in a way, I see myself as a conduit, as a messenger for whatever comes through me. I don't see myself, oh, I created all of this. I'm just simply see myself as a humble um, messenger who just needs to listen and, you know, just put it out in the world. Um, and obviously that light will and that beautiful healing music will heal me first and then so I can put it out in the world. But that, yeah, that's how I see it. And it sounds like a, a really beautiful but really powerful personal process you know losing weight you know that physical impact um (laughs) you know that's that's a lot isn't it for you to to trust it's a big process to trust yeah absolutely I mean I sort of know that okay this is happening and I'm just just you just need to surrender to it um and yeah to embrace it because it's so profoundly beautiful so have you, you know, even from a child, um, always experienced vivid dreams? And have you come to a place now where, again, you accept those dreams and almost start to read them like a book and, and, and learn from them? Yeah, I always had dreams. I always had very vivid dreams. I used to, I used to have very vivid dreams and wake up first thing in the morning and make, draw pictures of them when I was very little. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm very closely connected to the world of imagination um, since since I was a child. I, I loved it. I loved folk tales and fairy tales from all over the world, and um, you know, and just to be in touch with it through nature, through any way, really. Um, yeah, I I always find it like sort of um, awakens my my inner child and in, in and tickles it in a very lovely way. Yeah, and it's really interesting when people refer to the inner child. And and I know that, you know, um, you've also referred to recapturing you like the optimism of the child. Um, and you were, you were uh, talking about one of your uh, pieces of music in particular. Yeah. Um, and it felt like you were valuing that childlike quality of openness, optimism, curiosity, if you like. Um, And I wondered if you could share with the listeners how you interpreted that in in one of the pieces of your music. Yeah, so you're particularly talking about Walk With Me. So the way that piece came about is that, um, so I... I pray and meditate before I compose and I do the same thing before I go on stage and um, I pray for the music to bring peace and or healing in, in, in any way or form and um, so the pandemic hit there was lockdown everywhere and um, and obviously I learned that just to go within as part of my spiritual process, you know, regularly every day. And um, when when I went to prayer, I I saw like all humanity walking together towards a better, more compassionate future for everyone on the earth. 
And it was such a beautiful, such a comforting image. Um, and I and, and then this piece of music basically unfolded. Um, and uh, I originally wanted to have a little girl singing the main melody, <laughs> which I will do it one day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's... Uh, um, and uh, yeah, it just... Because to be honest with you, I'm in my heart of heart, I'm I'm very much a child, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm very silly and very goofy, and um, and I have a lot of optimism. And many people look at me, think, okay, you're you're crazy, you're not practical enough. Um, and I go like, fine, <laughs> that's me, um, you know. Um, so so yeah, that was the process behind that. So it's just. Yeah, I was, it's always lovely to, to hear, like I had a friend who was going through a rough time and she, she was saying that she uses this piece as a shield. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so um, I love that. Mm. I absolutely love it. That's an interesting choice of word, isn't it? Shield. So yeah, it's, a, a, it's really interesting. It, I was fascinated by what she was saying. So it's it's offered her a form of comfort or protection in yeah. terms of a shield. Yeah, yeah, that's what she was. She meant, which yeah. I, that meant so much to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and shows the effect, the desired effect of, of your, your music, um, a form of healing and protection and comfort. And I wondered, in terms of embracing optimism, and, it, and it's so lovely that you, you know, embrace and live your, your own inner child how you held on to that when optimism must have been so deeply challenged by the war and and witnessing destruction in in your home of Syria oh gosh yeah I just I think I was surrounded by a lot of grace at that time you know because um it was it was a really difficult time because obviously I was hearing the news of, you know, friends and family being killed, being kidnapped, places I loved being destroyed, you know, the thought that I will never see my parents again. Um, and obviously also the bigger pain that, oh my gosh, this is happening to my homeland. And... Um, it's so deeply painful. It's also the deep pain that my, you know, the brothers and the sisters are fighting each other. Um, you know, the one is, is, is there is a, a schism in, in, in the integral structure of society, um, which really, 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 really pained me at, a, at the deepest level. And at the same time, I was going through domestic abuse at the same time. So it, it was but mad because it was like I have I'm experiencing a war back home even though I'm in London you know I'm not experiencing actual bombs mm. um but and and there is a, a war in my personal home mm. while I was trying to look after a child and, and make a living and you know figure life out and um and yeah I just I, I mean I think it just again it started with a prayer you know just and I remember there was a voice yeah. in my head that saying, you either do something or you perish. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, my, my son at the time, the two things that kept me going were my son and my music. I remember my son, I used to try to practice, you know, force myself to practice because I had, I had a concert and, um, and he, he was tiny. He was like, two and a half, three, and he used to bow to me after every single piece saying, thank you, mummy, in the most, and he used to, I used to look at this child and think, yeah, <laughs> you know, just how can you know, <laughs> you know, how can you do this? Um, so, you know, and uh, yeah, so I was surrounded by, by a lot of uh, earth angels, a lot of grace, at the time that somehow kept me going through all of this madness. And uh, yeah, I couldn't have done it without that, basically. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're describing such deep 
anxiety uh, and struggle. You know, when you have the anxiety of your your home, your family in Syria in a war context, and like and as you say, directly in your your home setting, that I wondered whether prayer and faith not only gives you resilience and courage, but is it also when you talk of finding home, is it is it a a universal home? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um yeah. Because, you know, with the with I mean my music is is even though it is rooted in my personal experience, I always wanted it to move to the universal. So like even Syrian dreams, I wanted it to be a prayer for peace, not only in Syria but the whole world. Um, but with finding home, the the universal, you know, the, the moving from the local to the universal, despite the local being, which is Syria, you know, being in my heart of hearts, and you know, it will always be my home because mm-hmm. that's that's my roots. But if you ask me now, what is home? I would say it's a state. You know, it's a state of of perfect peace. You know, where. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can experience that state in so many different ways. You can just experience it while, you know, you are in nature or while you are looking at somebody's face and they're smiling at you or while you're having tea or, you know, just or while you're um, meditating. It's just any, any, you know, in any way that you experience that peace, Um and that is universal. That's what we all look for, really. Um, you know, in, in, in no matter how that looks like for us. Yeah, so it's interesting when you think about home as a state, something that can always be with you and, and not vulnerable to place, it it gives you a, an added layer of of security, perhaps. And would you say that tied in with finding the courage to, you know, leave um, a difficult relationship, one of domestic abuse? Is is it a form of resilience and and security? Is it is it a pathway that helps you see your way through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without that courage. You need you need a lot of you know uh, there is so much you know talk about power and how power looks like and it's often you know connected to physical force or aggression and um, but power is you have the power to to choose peace you know over drama or over. Um, madness that 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 takes a lot of courage that takes a lot of strength that takes a a deep commitment Uh, I'm not saying I'm perfectly there no Mm. I'm a work in progress you know Mm. Um, I have so much to learn and so much to improve Uh, I'm very human and but I made the commitment to 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 basically keep that the compass of my life you know Mm. In every decision I make, mm. in everything I do, does it lead me towards that home, spiritual home? Does it take me away from it? If it take, leads me to it, I'm I'm all in. If it takes me away from it, I, I will say no, even though if it looks wonderful. <laughs> um, mm. So yeah, it's it's all connected. Everything is connected to everything, basically, to that one choice, basically, um, and to what is your compass. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's very interesting because I I remember when you introduced Bombs Turn Into Roses from your album Syrian Dreams and I'll let you share and describe the dream you had for the for the listeners. It seems to be very much about transformation and, and almost by accepting home as a state, it almost allows you to Revisualize, rewrite, or or recreate the home that you want to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, in a way, I mean, every artist have their own. Every person in the world they have their own 
you know, mission and impact, which is in the world that is very personal. But to me, um, particularly with this piece, I felt that I was filtering something very difficult, something very heavy, um, and transmuting it to something softer. And the I had this a dream uh, when I was going through this difficult period of uh, the two wars. Um, and in the dream, I was sitting uh, under or standing uh, under a sky full of bombs. And it was a place completely covered with ruins. Um, and I was looking up and the sky was completely full of bombs falling down slowly. And just before they hit me, they turned to white rose petals. So I wake up like three in the morning, um, crying, and I hold the canoe and the main theme comes out. Um, I'm just write it like I'm half awake, you know. Um, and when I wondered about the meaning of the white petals, because that's that's the point where I felt so much relief. <laughs> um, mm. I was... Um, uh, yeah, I, the, the realization came later when I was invited to a gathering and I was invited to imagine white petals of peace falling to the earth. And I was like, ah, here it is. That's mm. what it means. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel it. I feel it when I when I play this piece. <laughs> it's really, it's really strange. I just feel the filtering in my own body. Um, and I often cry, you know, on stage because it's such an intense process. Um, but yeah, that's, and again, yeah. So I'm grateful to that this piece, despite <laughs> the heaviness of it, you know, just brings in that piece. So, yeah. 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 Um, it, it, it's really strong and, and powerful, imagery or spiritual messaging um that that you're literally feeling physically and and interpreting musically it seems yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's one for me all of this it's not it's not separate everything is 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 a one continuum and in the same way that you have expressed finding home as a state, as a universal home, if you like. You also composed The Universal Mother on the same album. And I felt it was a beautiful piece in that on one hand, there was deep melancholy, but it also felt very strong and, and very connected somehow. And I wondered if you could tell us about that particular piece of music and the dynamic of the situation you were in, in terms of your place and your mother's place at the time. Yeah. So um, I um, I live in, in the UK, in London, and my mum and dad, they live in Damascus, in Syria. Um, they chose not to leave. And obviously because I am... A mum, I couldn't take my son there because it felt risky. Um, so I haven't seen them for uh, five or six years. And then mm. before that, I haven't seen them for another five or six years. Mm. Um, so it's an awful long time, awfully long time to spend without your parents and your mother. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... I was going through the process of writing and uh, I was just hit by this huge wave of, of nostalgia and I felt something really swelling in me. Um, and um, I was really missing my mother. And when I sat at my canoe, um, I wrote like the core melody. And, and again, there were, there were tears flowing. And in that moment... I, I heard a whisper that you're always in my embrace. Um, and I believe that was the universal mother, you know, divine mother, whatever you want to call it, mm. that was telling me that we're always in her embrace in every single moment, even though I can't, I can't reach my human mother. Mm. 
I'm always being mothered by the mother of everything. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so in that piece, there's a lot of longing and nostalgia. And it's like a strong call to the mother um, to, to come to me, basically. So yeah, there is comfort, there is pain in it. Yeah, and everything in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it really did feel like a, almost like a physical connection. That was what was so lovely about it. The melancholy was very deep, but there was a real strength, and it and it felt like a, the, the, it felt like the physical connection that you that you currently can't have. Mm, that's so lovely. Thank you. <laughs> so, if you were to think of home in terms of Syria. Uh, obviously, uh, in relation to, to family, where would you be happiest playing and, and who to? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, naturally, it would be Damascus. Um, mm. And um, because that's where I grew up and that's where I studied. And uh, it's really funny. I would say, you know, just... I would say because when I was very little, I um, my household because my 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 dad was a uh, a script writer and well writer in, in in greater term and and my mother was a translator and we had guests from you know um, you know actors philosophers writers sculptors painters everything mm-hmm. in between um, wow. and they used to ask me to play for them you know um and I used to get so annoyed oh <laughs> like did you alone. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually love to go back to that to that you know it's uh it was so intimate and so lovely um there was even one <laughs> from Bobo yeah so I would go back to that yeah. somehow and you know that would be really nice to recreate yeah, I mean that's what a, what an amazingly culturally rich household. I mean that would, for most of us, be a dream come true, isn't it? Funny that as a child you could have felt annoyed. Yeah, I was annoyed. <laughs> yeah, I must confess <laughs> because they would come all the time. And, you know, every other day, my play for us. No. <laughs> but what's also lovely is, as a child, um, you were quite prepared to respond positively to annoyance and what I'm referring to is when you were only nine years old sitting in the back of a taxi cab and I'll I'll let you explain the rest of the story (laughs) yeah yeah so um yeah basically you know because I was singing singing dancing tapping all the time so my parents put me in a music institute and um the um we I had like a, a solfeggio, a music theory class. So my mother took me there. It was like a very hot summer's day in Damascus. And um, the taxi driver turned on the radio on and uh, there came the sound of the canoe. And it just felt, I just felt so much love. And I was like, why is this instrument? I want to play it. And he laughed at me. He said, you are a girl. This instrument is for men forget about it um and I told him I will you will see um my mother shrugged her shoulders basically she she kissed me goodbye she was reading her book outside the you know the classroom I walk in and after like about 10 minutes um the head of the institute walks in and announces the opening of a canoe class and I was like oh my gosh okay so I I just ran straight after the class and I was the first to sign up to the astonishment of my mother. Um, but obviously at the same time, you know, at the beginning, I, I at that time I was I was doing violin, you know. I, I was like, I really didn't love it, you know. I was just doing it just because my parents um, wanted me to do violin. Yeah, and yeah. Um, at that stage, you know, seeing seeing my face, you know, my determination, my, my parents returned that, violin and yeah in two days I had a a huge secondhand (laughs) canoe five times my size waiting for me on on the coffee table so that's how it all started 
it's it's an incredible strike of destiny, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah. You know, <laughs> but you know, moments before a class is announced, you have that experience yeah. in a taxi, but an experience that was potentially going to shut you down. It was a very prejudiced experience. You know, this is a male only yeah. instrument. What what an incredible juxtaposition of of two strikes of destiny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't only need to tell me that you can't do something and then I go like, right, let's get busy and get it done. <laughs> so so that was the purpose of the taxi driver. He he was, was a like gift. It, yeah. He was a gift. He was helping you. He was a gift. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. So at the same time, I wondered whether there was any intimidation at such a young age with learning the instrument because it's also described as possibly the most difficult instrument in the world to learn and were there any key players that spurred you on that gave you courage and and influenced you um to overcome any any fears you may have had yes i mean um i mean you need to understand that syria is a i mean it's a patriarchal society and it's um, the key figure in the house that make decisions is, is really the father. Um, so if your father opposes, you know, uh, you learning music or you acting or you dancing, whatever, then that's it. That's the end of, of it basically for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really leaning on support of family, really. You know, because I was just being, um, because my mom and dad were the most incredibly supported, supportive parents that anybody could hope for. Um, it really, whatever was happening outside that bubble, didn't matter. Um, I did feel uncomfortable in 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 many stages of my life. Um, you know, particularly when I started performing on stage and. Um, you know, you would get faced by looks of dismay. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, I would just look at my mum and dad who were like, you know, incredibly proud of me. And I was like, well, it doesn't matter, you know? Um, so um, in the early stages, it was just really my, my, my parents who just kept me going. Mm-hmm. And later on, I just, uh, I encountered teachers that, um, really supported me in in finding my um you know sonic identity mm. um so yeah yeah so as as a female you know as a, as a child as an adult playing what's perceived as a traditionally male instrument and and this comes up elsewhere in orchestras you know there's prejudices where uh, women and certain instruments are concerned, um, which has even led to very interesting blind auditioning um, to remove some of those, you know, barriers of, of prejudice. Um, so how, how far did that go in terms of potentially potentially stopping you or defeating you in terms of having to (laughs) confront that yeah um yeah you know it's uh, like there were some sometimes like some like a long time ago when I was in the high institute of music somebody wrote a really horrible review of one of um you know just sort of attacking me for being a woman you know so it's, it was like an attack in the public you know so I was like oh my gosh I want to you know hide under a pillow for the rest of my life <laughs> mm. um and he was very famous you know um so mm. so yeah I and and obviously you know sometimes you would go to um like the 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 conservatoire's ensemble, uh, where you you need to participate. It's part of your learning, um, and part of that you are supposed to improvise. You need to do something called a taksim improvisation, hmm. and taksim hmm. is like the pinnacle of artistic expression. Um, if you don't know how to do a taksim, then you're not you're not an artist. You're not a player. You're not you don't deserve, deserve to be called a musician. So wow. I would get like slightly hinted at saying 
yeah, shall I do it for you? Shall I do the taqsim for you by other um, gentlemen? Mm. And I'll go like, I can do it myself, thank you. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you know, taxi drivers, you know, grinning at you saying, oh, you're an artist, you don't care. All, all of these things of the sort, you know, in, in the daily life that make you go like, <laughs> mm. um, and when I was, you know, halfway in, in my studies, I really wanted to quit music altogether. I just really hit a, a, a you know, um, a proper roadblock. Um, mm. But again, um, my parents kept saying, just keep going, keep going. Um, and yeah, mm. so that was my experience with that. You do have incredible courage uh, self-possession I know that we don't necessarily feel courageous at the time but when you consider wading through those kind of prejudices when you consider that you have had to accept such long distance from family due to war or due to covid when you have had to face fear in your own home you know leaving a domestic abuse situation you have outstanding uh, self-possession and resilience do, do you recognize that in yourself um as as a form of courage you're very kind I mean to be honest with you I just I feel that I had no choice but to keep going really you know um I had no choice and again I had even though things were incredibly difficult, I had these beautiful moments of grace um, where I, you know, that kept me going. Um, so, yeah, I, that's how, the way I, how I see it, you know? I just, I, <laughs> my, 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 one of my best friends, she says, oh, um, sometimes I'll look at your life and it's a bit like an Indian Bollywood film. Um, and I laugh, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I just laugh, you know, but the way I see it is that I had no choice, but to keep going, I had no choice, you know, I just had to. And even though the world was, you know, there are so many, there was so the easiest perhaps thing was to just give up, but I had to, move on for my for my son I had to move on um there was always something that you know in the moment when things go really dark there is like this flash of grace that gives you propels you to the next hundred miles or whatever <laughs> and you yeah. know things go dark again and again you know through what I call earth angels or um some event that just gives you another push of strength to keep you going um yeah, that's how I see it. I just had to. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it sounds like you know courage is as sheer necessity, and and I'm also imagining that this really explains why you must be such a good teacher. So, for example, when you were talking about you know really harsh experiences of criticism, I think critics can behave very irresponsibly as uh, instead of supporting a process or, or an education um, and forget that people are entitled to develop are entitled to to be vulnerable and and, and should be commended for their vulnerability um, whilst they are trying to improve something or in your case at that time you you know you were developing your musician musicianship um is this all part of informing how you choose to teach because I know that you are also trying to actively demystify how Arabic music is understood yeah yeah very much so I mean I think yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that you're bringing vulnerability. And, you know, obviously, um, I mean, it's interesting because my mom would always say that it's really good that I am building a career here because I can show that side of myself. And and let me tell you, I had huge vulnerability hangovers. You know, uh, you know when I put something so sensitive and fragile in the world, 
I almost get sick <laughs> for like a mm. couple of days and and it's just like I don't want to do anything I just can't handle you know it just it can't get over the fact that I put myself out there in such an open way um but it I the more I see the positive and the human and the healing impact of that the more I embrace it um you know it's a process it's not it's not it's and it's really not comfortable you know but uh when it comes to teaching um I think there is what what really makes me go nuts is that there's so much snobism mm. in teaching Arabic music. There's so many um, basically unspoken rules mm. um, that makes it almost impossible for people to learn. Mm. And um, like for instance, the maqam system, the the you know the the the, the musical theory, the mood system, um, and which is basically the raw claw material from which um, clay material from which you shape, you know, music. Mm. Um, so the, yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the theoreticians have agreed to disagree and it's the, the theory is really far from practice, really far from how music is actually played, you know, mm. uh, on the ground. Um, so basically I have, I felt the urge to create the systems. Um, like, for instance, I teach maqam. I created a system to teach maqam with Lego pieces. So mm. you have, like, a visual uh, representative. And um, so I created the systems that I wish I had mm. <laughs> uh, when I was, you know, studying that are very hands-on, that help anybody to learn Arabic music or qanun, same same thing. So qanun, mm. you know, learning is that you don't. There are no systems, um, and you have to go to um, to a teacher to uh, to teach. You. And then there is a process of like copying. Um, there's a lot of trial and error, and most people a can't afford that. B don't want to spend this this much time. That you know the tempo of life is is so fast in in, in the UK, Europe, and the US. People don't have time to you know mm. spend a year with with a mentor. Mm. Um, it's not. It's uh, it, it's not realistic. So um, you know, just creating the system for anybody who love Arabic music, who anybody who want to learn Qanun. Uh, and no matter where you're, their age, no matter if they know how to. Uh, read music, no matter if they play the instrument in their life or not, it's very accessible. That you know, the theor theoretical side is there for those who mm -hmm. want to indulge in that. But you know, it's to start with, it's very. I made it super accessible um, because yeah, I can't stand the fact that somebody comes to me saying, "Oh, I love, I love, I'd love to know how to um, do a taksim like me." You know, mm -hmm. when I was and. Uh, and I have no clue because I have no idea how I'm going to start, you know, learning maqam, you know, because maqam is sort of the alphabet from which you need to, you know, learn and, and to create words and sentences and, and, and musical stories. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I have I have a lot of passion around, you know, just make it making it more accessible to anybody who will just love it. The only prerequisite that you need is that. Do you love it? Yes. Okay, good. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? perfect. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so you're, 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 uh, you're, allowing, you're allowing openness, you're allowing curiosity, aren't you? It's a healthy form of, of discovery, Absolutely. exploration. Yeah. And, and so how does this also translate in terms of the, the really lovely and significant work you do with refugee communities? Because I understand that's a, a form of teaching in terms of uh, of exploring home. And I wondered if you could tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that started when I, I wouldn't call it a form of teaching. It's just, I would call it like a, an offering, an experience. Um, you know, mm. I, I started working with a therapeutic theatre company called Oily Cart, who do incredible work with children with autism and, and multiple um, challenges and disabilities and um, I had the pleasure to curate the music for one of their shows um, with a music director Max Reinhardt and then tour it in, across the UK in venues and schools and I've seen so many you know does the show is like what 20 minutes but I've seen so many magical moments you know uh, that really inspired me to to do something 
for refugee children. And that's when I created the Seven Gates of Damascus with uh, the music director of Audi Cart, uh, which is basically a musical storytelling offering. Again, it's a one-off thing that you experience that will hopefully lead you to a more peaceful place. Um, but also, it's not always I can run that because it's it, it requires you know carrying big props. So um, you know, with with refugee communities as part of the Finding Home tour, because I believe as within, so without. Um, you know, you need to, so that finding home is my inner process, but in the outside, I needed to sort of create an experience where somebody even can experience an inkling of home, you know, which is by, you know, offering them, offering refugee uh, communities tickets to uh, concerts, um, getting all venues on board with that, um, you know, uh, having school workshops as part of the tour where we target schools with high population of refugees. Um, and then again, going to uh, deliver refugee community workshops as well as the seven gates of Damascus. So, um, yeah, just basically reaching them in, in, in any and everywhere I can. So, you know, I'm always fascinated by how powerful the, uh, the sound of the canoe is it I'm always you know discovering that and I'm it's always quite a humbling experience to to witness that because you know the sound of the canoe in so many ways can transport somebody to a place to an emotion um and I I don't know how many times I heard that the sound of the canoe uh and that that somebody would say, oh, it took me back to the time when I was spending with my grandmother uh, and playing in her backyard. It took me back to the smell of the cooking of my mother. It took me back to a place that I really love. It took me back to a memory that I really love. It's, um, I always hear that, you know, by, you know, refugee communities and, and we often share, you know, laughter and, and tears. <laughs> Um, sometimes a combination of both, um, you know, and so I always find that extremely humbling. And because I am very aware of that, I wanted uh, all venues to um, to basically reserve a number of tickets for refugee communities. Because at the end of the day, you know, the um, the venues that I am playing at are classical venues. And to somebody who who is here as a refugee, they might seem cold and aloof and not accessible. Um, and it's very important for me to break the ice, to bring them in. Um, and and at the same, so basically every single um, uh, venue reserved a number of tickets for refugee communities to come. At the same time, I went to them, I went to schools, um, with high population of refugees, delivered workshops. Sometimes I would work with the children and then I'll invite them to come and perform with me on stage. Um, and, and also, you know, delivering refugee community workshops. So it's basically, it's all about, you know, seeing what's possible because, you know, um, just to be very, very, um, you know, realistic and, um, just, just to, to offer, to do any offering I can, uh, as much as I can, really, just to help, um, you know, reach those communities because it's so important for me. Yeah, it's it's a really lovely uh, extension of your work and your healing work. And in terms of, you know, we've been talking about a universal home, um, a, a musical a musical home, uh, different worlds, if you like, you know, that have a common universality. I'm also interested in that process when you're actually recording and, and you know, you're working with a producer. You, you, you've also worked with Opera North, for example. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe tell us about those relationships. And I wasn't sure if whether the Opera North relationship came out of um, – an existing operatic tradition that you may have already had in Syria, for example. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, 
so I had an existing relationship with with Opera North in a in a sense that they I performed there uh, as part of my Syrian Dreams launch tour in 2018, and then they have commissioned me to write um, to be one of the writers uh, as part of the project Walking Home, which is basically been sonic journeys that people can listen to um, while walking during lockdown and um, Silver Lining which is the longest track on on the Finding Home album is is commissioned by them and um, it's it's not you know the there's no uh, immediate connection or with the operatic um, uh, line of, of work mm-hmm. in Syria but there is a definite connection in terms of you know, exploring how does classical music of other traditions look like? Because I don't, you know, if for those who are very interested in, in you know, categorization, I don't see my music as world music per se. I see it as Arabic chamber music. Mm-hmm. I see it as classical music. You know, it's a classical music from a different world. Um, and obviously it contains so many different elements, but if I am to put a label on it, um, that's why I would put personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just that common curiosity of how does that look like? You know, how does that classical tradition of uh, of players and composers who are rooted in 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 a in an ancient tradition that goes back to thousands of years, who are trying to explore how does that music you know look like in a contemporary context? That curiosity was was definitely a very strong connection between us, and which is why I I went to Upper North again, and I was like, well, I'd love to um, uh, write. I'm I'm hearing that because the way I write is that I write and then I start to hear layers of 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 sound, and I was like, okay, I'm hearing string quartets for a couple of the tracks. Would you be able to? support me in providing um, a string quartet from your orchestra that would be incredible and amazingly they did say yes so um, so three tracks are um, are basically for they include string quartet um, so the and yeah so and and every so that was the, from the side of Upper North and then from the British Museum I, I also went to them saying I'd love to collaborate because I went to organizations that I felt that I had a, a lovely connection with I felt sort of home with yeah. You know, with. yeah. Um, and um, and they were like okay so we have this exhibition called Reflections um, it's a, an exhibition about artists from um, you know the Middle East exploring conflict identity um, would you like to attend and would you like to see if you would be called to um, compose pieces of music inspired by uh, the works of art? And I was like, absolutely, that would be an adventure. I've never done that, anything like that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, so I went to the exhibition during lockdown and, and I, you know, I was, the curator was sat on the side and I was exploring the works of art and I saw what was calling to me. Um, and and I went home and, and started writing. So this this you know sense of collaboration in this album is very 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 strong because you know um, even even Walk with Me was a was a commissioned by BBC Radio Three as well. Um, so um, and then also I knew that I wanted the the because I'm not experienced as a producer. Um, and so I worked with Leo Abrahams, who is incredible. He's such a prolific producer who worked with every shade of music possible that you can imagine, you know. Mm. Um, and most importantly, he's 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 very very warm and very kind hearted, and so and deeply listens to my vision. So I co co produced the album with him. Um, so yeah, the whole album basically there's so much an insane amount of energy and love and that and attention that went into every detail of the album by all the collaborators, you know. Yeah. And then also to add, I, this is an independent record. So when I was writing my uh, Arts Council application, I was like, you know, many people agreed to be put down as partners. You know, mm. um, all of the tour dates, you know, all of the tour venues, they were like, yeah you have our support. So there was a lot of generosity, you know, when it came to making this album. Um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And 
yeah, and I hope that I'll be able to pay it back. Yeah, and, and a lovely um, comment, actually, that Dominic Gray at Opera North made was how their musicians learned so much more about the potential of their own instruments by working with you. And I wondered if that's uh, almost a common thread with all of your musical collaborations. I mean, that is very sweet of him to say that because, you know, I mean, I always see everything as an exploration. It's everything is a process of learning. I'm, I'm always learning. I will always be learning. Um, it was so amazing to work I was, I'm not going to lie, I was a bit scared of, of the experience because, um, you know, with with other musicians, I had I had about a month, you know, of, of, of sitting with them, bringing the music to them, fine-tuning, and nothing was written, you know. With Opera North, I had one day. Wow. <laughs> so I had to get the score to a point of perfection working with, again, and another collaborator was the amazing orchestrator, Kalina Dolamare, um, you know, to get the score to a point of absolute perfection. So we had four hours to rehearse, four hours to record, and that was it, you know? Mm. So um, there was a different process for every for every single piece, and it was very important for me to, you know, for, yeah, just to, to capture um, the music as as accurately, as honestly as, as I can, before I can go there and, and, and have the intimate experience of recording with them. Um, and they were absolutely phenomenal. And yeah, so I, 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 it, they really opened so many doors in my head, you know, this experience. So um, I would say I'm the one who learned so much. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's lovely because um, again, it was, it was Dominic Gray at Opera North that mentioned that um, the process is the same as, is creating a dialogue, but that you're able to bring old and new together, you know, that you can work with classical, traditional music, but you're open to com- contemporary ideas. And would you say that's uh, that's a fair description and, and that it's also therefore a dialogue that helps you reach new and wider and different audiences as a result? Yeah, I mean, for, on, a, on a, you know, in a very logical, very pragmatic uh, way of thinking, yes, that is accurate. But I must add that whenever I write the music, I don't think, oh, I'm going to make this album a classical album. I'm just simply s- sitting and just listening to whatever layers that are needed that to convey the emotional um, fingerprints of the emotional charge of, of the piece. You know, I'm not thinking, you know, so, so that's why it's, I always find it very fascinating how... Um, people hear other, you know, musical traditions in, in my music are like, oh, okay. Um, you know, when, when somebody first told me that uh, I hear Philip Glass in, in this in this music or mm-hmm. I hear, um, you know, um, a bit of ambience music in, in, in your music. So like, oh, fascinating, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, in, in, a, in, a, in the logical way, you know, of, of putting, you know, it's, yes, it is the case, but in a, an emotional, spiritual sense. It's um, I'm just basically listening to the music and, and waiting for her to, to show me where I'm going to go next, regardless of you know the the box it's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, Mayor, unfortunately, as um, time always races by, um, and so that I don't steal you for too long, I should probably think about the final question of this episode. Uh, where we consider the question, can art save us, which isn't a simple yes or no answer. But I was interested in a quote from you, which in which you said, I see myself as a tree. I'm rooted in Syria, but my branches can go anywhere. And I wondered if that may relate in some way as to how you might answer the series question can art save us yeah I would say yes (laughs) (laughs) and and absolutely yes um art saved my life you know I would not be here if without you know music and without again my son so it did save my life and even though it cannot feed the hungry and it cannot save the wounded and, um, you know, it just, it has a, 
a different purpose, which is, you know, going to the heart of the collective experience of humankind and and transmuting it or translating it into something that has a heart resonance something that you can feel in your heart it's not it's not logical um it's not a thought process it's something that you can feel and know in your heart which is i think it's the most honest and most direct way of, of expression and 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 relating to to others um like talking to somebody from your heart without without words um and i believe that you know it just it's such a big question but and again i'm going to answer it you know in the way i see it is that you know some pieces of art you're literally transmuting something heavy to something softer and some pieces of art you just um allowing yourself to 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 daydream and, and meander in in the imagination world um everything has its place everything has has a meaning um and you know again if you do not if i was not rooted in in that tradition or in the syrian tradition that goes back to thousands of years i would not have the musical language i would not be my branches would not be able to be able to roam so freely um and won't be able to explore the many um you know realms of sound that are possible so so yes absolutely art can save us Maya, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and to, for, for being so brave uh, in terms of how openly you've spoken today. And, and of course, a huge thank you for being someone that's spreading so much healing in the world. Thank you so much, Maya, thank for you. your time. Thank, thank you so much. much. Thank you so much, Paula. Such a pleasure talking to you. You too.